Bonjour et bienvenue sur l'émission de cette semaine. Nous vous révélons pourquoi les compétences linguistiques, l'expérience des échanges Erasmus et l'agilité culturelle sont très en demande auprès des employeurs mondiaux. A lovely little smattering of French from Eliza there. I'm going to have my attempt, but it's just Konnichiwa, bonjour, hello, welcome to Careers Talk. I'm Kerry Eustace. Right, so you might have guessed we're going global this week, but sadly I'm not beaming to you from an exotic far-flung corner of the world. We're still in London, but we've been inspired by some new research that's found a demand for graduates with global employability. Due out this week, the report Global Graduates into Global Leaders explores the globalisation of businesses and their need for globally mobile graduate talent. We'll be joined later in the podcast by one of the report's researchers to talk about the increasingly global job market for graduates and what this means for job seekers. Plus, we sent a roving reporter down to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to find out about EU careers, what languages you need and the importance of Erasmus programmes. But first, we've got a roundup of the news and Ali White and Eliza Anyangwe are here to share their stories. Hello both. Hello. I'm actually going to start this week hugging the mic, but I'm sure lots of listeners have heard about the really big story this week that The Guardian broke about young job seekers being told to work without pay or that they're going to lose their employment benefits. So the people who've been taking up work experience places via the job centre, perhaps providing up to 30 hours a week of unpaid labour, face losing their benefits if they quit. So that's been a massive story that got sort of like 1,600 comments. But I actually wanted to focus on something a bit more positive that was good news for grads. So Revenue and Customs is planning to crack down on the fashion industry's unpaid interns. They're going to be forming a new task force to do random spot checks on firms that are employing unpaid interns and are in breach of minimum wage laws. Um, the Guardian seen some internal documents from Revenue and Customs which show it believes interns across the employment spectrum are at high risk of abuse under the national minimum wage laws. And so there's going to be a 12-person task force to make unannounced inspections of businesses where interns are being used as workers rather than just sort of shadowing staff. Um, it's the first time that intern abuse has been targeted by HMRC, um, which is responsible for enforcing minimum wage. And it's following a lot of kind of criticism from internship campaign groups and the low pay commission over the lack of action. So in the internal briefing document that The Guardian seen, it's highlighted the growing nature of the intern problem. So finally, some recognition. Um, it's acknowledged that over the past few years, there's been significant rises in the number of UK employers offering internships um, that are, un- are unpaid um, and that they want to target the fashion industry because it's well known for its use of interns. Now, of course, we know that lots of other sectors are using them. And even in the comment threads on this story, everyone was kind of saying, what about media? What about the charity sector? And, um, you know, we anticipate that they will look at these but at least we can sort of look at this as kind of the ball is rolling and some action is going to be taken um another positive side of this report is that interns aren't going to be kind of implicated in this because the existing system is that interns had to kind of report an employer or go through a legal system where this has taken the onus away from being blacklisted perhaps in a potential industry because you're seen as that you're going to whistle blow on an employer so it's going to be down to the government to sort of go into businesses and treat an intern sensitively so that it's not going to all come back on them and they look like they've sort of <laughs> brought them in for inspections and they're going to have you know quite strong powers to look at whatever they need to do to assure the people who are working there are getting paid what they are due. Um, Now our friends over on Graduate Fog um, who've been campaigning for internships to be sorted out are obviously very pleased about all this and there was a great quote 
that Tanya gave, which I'm just going to read to you. She said, HMRC is right in thinking that fashion is one of the worst industries for taking advantage of their young workers. The thought of being spot-checked will have the fashion houses' lawyers shaking in their expensive shoes. Um, So like I say, maybe your industry will be next if they're not looking at it now, but I definitely think this is a victory for getting rid of unpaid internships. Okay, I've got the news that businesses will now be able to bid for a share of a 250 million fund for vocational training programmes in the new year. And it's part of a government scheme designed to bring more skills into the workforce. So basically, it will allow businesses to invest in the training that they need. And it's hoped that the fund will encourage more employers to take on apprentices, which is quite good news. So to be successful in their bids, the employers will need to demonstrate how they will support apprenticeships and raise the skills level in their sector. And under the plans, the companies get their power to design, develop and buy vocational training programmes that most suit their needs. So, you know, it sounds like really good news for people who either want to become an apprentice or, you know, skills training in the sector you might be working in. And the scheme actually follows a recent announcement by Business Secretary Vince Cable. He basically announced an incentive scheme worth up to £1,500 for small businesses employing fewer than 50 staff to entice them to take on more apprentices. And it's hoped that the cash will cut the number of jobless 16 to 24-year-olds, which broke through the 1 million barrier for the first time recently. So, yeah, just basically, you know probably watch that space for a while it's not going to be instant overnight but it does sound like more kind of opportunities for apprentices I think this fits into my story a little bit as well is that there is going to be more entry-level training because it seems like that internships have become so endemic because there are no there aren't as many training opportunities Mm -hmm. as there once were so if you can be trained up in an initial role rather than being expected to know everything about a sector it's just like you say more opportunities for young people which is another positive news story which we're happy to report on (laughs) So what's yours? Well, sticking to our theme about looking on global graduates, not that many graduates are fortunate to have a job with a big company or that sends them abroad and that sorts everything out. So for a lot of young people who are thinking, actually, maybe there's not that much work opportunity here. Maybe I'll try somewhere else. I've got friends who live in Spain. I've got, you know, my girlfriend's just moved to Latin America. Maybe I could go and find a job there. I found a blog that has some tips for people like that trying to move abroad. And the blog is called Across the Pond and it's written by a Canadian who moved to England to find a job and she just shares all the different things the mistakes that she made as well as the the things that she did without really knowing that they'd work out well but that did and I thought these are really good tips if anyone sort of towards the end of the year is thinking actually I'm going to start the new year in a different country be be wary of these things and she says leaving too soon can be a problem so you have to think through why you want to move and especially after Christmas you know you're you may have seen all of your family you might be hungover not the best time to move country she's also talking about jumping into the swing of things quite quickly you know you you might be afraid of being out of work for too long but you have to get a feel for the place you move to first and she says deciding to move in January actually is not such a great idea because in a recession January is a really big time for people in any given country to be looking for a job so if you're adding to the competition in the jobs market you might find it really difficult but likewise moving to I don't know parts of Europe in the summer where in August where everything is closed is not such a great idea either for trying to find a job so those are things you should be mindful of but she also says sorting out your place where you should live before you arrive is a good idea sorting out your bank account before you arrive is a good idea volunteering straight away so that you make local friends or if you haven't yet got a job those sort of things are really useful and actually if you're being strategic find a place that has a weaker currency than the country you left from because then your money goes a longer way so these are really great tips and good luck and happy travels practical advice there thanks very much both 
Now, earlier this week, I made a trip to the Foreign and Commonwealth Office to an event promoting EU careers. They're trying to encourage more Brits to apply, and we wanted to find out what they're looking for from candidates. My name's Hugh Davis. I'm the Press and Communication Manager at the European Personnel Selection Office in Brussels. Uh, I'm a UK civil servant on secondment out to the uh, European institutions, and I'm responsible for promoting careers with the EU and making sure people across Europe know about the job offers that we have uh, for people to come to Brussels and Luxembourg and work for the EU institutions. So can you just tell me a little bit more about the path you took into working for the, the EU? Yeah, I was always interested in the European Union and I was always interested in the UK civil service and so I started work after university just as a temp agent in the civil service in Wales working for the Welsh Government and then eventually got on to the civil service fast stream. And I did a few different jobs in, in Wales, working on the whole range of different policy areas. And then I was given the opportunity to come out to Brussels, and I did a five-month secondment initially working for the Trade Commissioner. So totally different area of uh, policy again. Um, and then luckily after that, I was given the opportunity to do another longer secondment working where I am now. So in terms of UK students, do, how difficult do you think it is for them? We haven't found that uh, UK applicants are performing any less well than other nationalities. In fact, in some areas of the selection procedure, they perform better um, uh, and a lot better than some mem member states. Um, so it's more generally that we, we don't get enough people applying. That, that's why we, we don't get enough sort of British EU civil servants coming through. So that's why we're trying to raise the awareness uh, so that we get, uh, get more people applying, get more people through. I'm here with David Bearfield, the Director of the European Personnel Selection Office. So if we could talk a little bit about the challenges you found with recruitment, what would you say is the biggest factor in trying to encourage more people from the UK to apply? Well, I think part of the problem is that people just don't know about the opportunities. And to be fair, I think part of the problem has been that for much of the last decade we were focusing on recruiting people from the countries that had just joined um, the EU, mainly from uh, Central and Eastern Europe. That focus shifted back firmly towards recruitment from all of the member states in 2010. So we're trying to re-establish ourselves as, as a brand um, on the graduate employment market, particularly here in the UK. I think another one perhaps is the, the linguistic barrier because Brits are probably known for not being the best at speaking other languages than their own, and that's a bit of an issue, because to come and work for the, for the European Union, part of the selection process is held in a second language, and um, basically you need to have a reasonable, or pretty reasonable, knowledge of French or German. I mean, we're not looking for people who are, you know, who are linguists in that sense, who have perfect command of a second language, but you need a, a pretty good level, so I would say at least a level standard. Um, and of course, when you come, yes, you're most likely going to be working in, in an environment where you're living, if you're living, for example, in Brussels, where French is an everyday reality. So there are lots of opportunities to uh, you know, improve your skills in that language or indeed any language. And the EU um, institutions offer a huge programme of language training um, uh, that's uh, offered to all staff. And it's not just about the languages. I mean, we really are looking for the top talent. Now, these are, these are really good jobs, but they're very demanding jobs. And there are plenty of other top employers who are also looking for that kind of really top talent coming out of UK universities. You know, this phrase, the war for talent, is, is not for nothing, you know, and, and we really recognise we're part of it. So we have to make a huge effort also to sell the opportunities we have. It's not enough just to say, oh, we're the European Union, everyone should want to come and work for us. We really got to, we've got a great offer, but I think we have not been good enough in, in selling it. 
Hi, my name's Claire Hewitt. I come from Portsmouth and in the European Commission, I'm head of the press team in the department dealing with everything to do with the digital technologies and the digital economy. I'm extremely lucky because my mum is French, but I've always grown up in England, but I spoke French from a small baby and every summer we'd go over to France to spend three or four weeks with my French family. I did German GCSE at school and I did Spanish up to A-level. In my work, I use English 95% of the time. I'll use French quite often in meetings and Spanish occasionally. And so when you were looking for work, did you find those sort of skills were in demand? I looked at careers in after graduation in environments where you needed languages. So for example, at the time I ended up working for the fashion industry where many of our offices and clients were in France, so that helped. In my job at the European Commission, it's kind of almost a prerequisite that you have to have at least one foreign language, so definitely that helped me out. So what would your advice be to any graduates who are thinking about applying for an EU career? What, what sort of things would you suggest that would make them stand out? Be yourself. I mean, the great thing about the European Commission is that we are suffering from a massive shortage of English graduates. Every single team I know wants to recruit somebody from an English university who's got fluent English. My advice would be, if you can, get your language up to a reasonable level. It doesn't have to be fantastic, but you have to be able to give a presentation and interact in a work environment in French or in German to get through the tests. But go for it. It's a fantastic career and it gives you great opportunities. Super. Um, and how much of a challenge did you find living abroad? And what would you recommend for someone who might be a bit apprehensive about going to work overseas? Brussels doesn't feel like abroad, to be honest. There are so many nationalities in there. We can even get BBC One and BBC Two and BBC Three and Four on cable. So it's not that far. The advantages are it really does add an extra dimension to your life. It makes you realise that England is fantastic, but it's not the centre of the universe. My advice would be go and do it. You don't have to leave forever. You can always come back to England if you want to. I'm here with David Liddington, the Minister for Europe. So if I can just start by saying we were here last year to hear about EU careers and the government's commitment to getting more Brits working in the EU institutions. How's that going? We've seen an improvement. I mean, the, the number of applications from this country went up by a third compared with the previous year. And that's a big step forward. But I've got to be the first to say that in terms of numbers, rather than proportionate increase, that it, it's still far too small. You know, about a thousand British people applied for jobs in the EU institutions. Eight thousand Italians applied at the same time. So it's a good start, but we need to drive this further forward because Britain is losing out because not enough of our people are sitting around helping to draft uh, EU measures, taking a part in the formulation of policy. And um, I was going to ask a bit more about um, working in Europe itself and kind of the skills and attributes that it can give you. I think there's two things. I think, first of all, if you're working at one of those European institutions, you, know, you will develop habits of drafting, organising uh, complicated material that will serve you well in uh, any private or public sector employment afterwards. But also, if you're having to work with, negotiate with people from all kinds of different nationalities and backgrounds, and understand something about their cultures, their habits of thinking, those are skills and experiences which international business will be really pleased to have if you choose to move on later in your life. And maybe one last question from maybe the context of your own career. What would you say for someone who's considering working in Europe? What kind of advice would you give them? I'd say that it, 
you see, and you talk to people who work for the, the Commission, as I do, people who've had really rewarding careers, who've been given responsibility at a very young age, who perhaps in their 20s have been going off to help lead international negotiations, you know, taking charge of one element of a, of a trade negotiation, for example. You find people with the opportunities to work all around the world because there are EU missions in many parts of the world. And Brussels, I mean, it's got a bit of this caricature reputation, a grey, drab city, but it isn't that. You've got 27 EU member states represented there, plus a lot of countries outside the EU that uh, have missions uh, in in Brussels, NATO headquarters, a huge number of trade organisations and multinational corporations are represented in order to lobby the EU Commission, the European Parliament. So you've got these thousands of very talented, bright young people all making their careers in Brussels. So it's quite an exciting, vibrant city to live in. You're running up against people from all parts of the world. Fantastic. Thank you ever so much. Thank you. That was Ali White reporting from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office in London. Okay, so we started the show with the news that employers are increasingly looking for graduates and candidates who have global competencies. If you're wondering what the hell global competencies are, today's guests should be able to shed some light. Along with the Association for Graduate Recruiters and CFE, a specialist in employment and skills, the Council for Industry and Higher Education has released a new report, Global Graduates into Global Leaders. We're joined now by David Doherty from the Council for Industry and Higher Education, who's going to tell us more about the research, what global competencies are, and how you can gain some. Hello, David. Hi. Thanks for coming in. Um, So can you just start off and tell us why it's important to raise the profile of global employability in the UK? Well, in part because there is a globally mobile graduate workforce already. I mean, there's about three and a half million students studying outside the countries they were born in or they have citizenship in, and they are going to be the global business leaders of the future or the global social leaders of the future. So we have to get UK students to understand that they're increasingly competing for jobs with people who are global graduates already. So it seems to us that that was a very important thing. second thing that was crucial to me anyway was that there's a very odd and rather fascinating economic thing called the headquarters effect, that you tend to be more committed to the country in which your HQ exists. And if you've got the leaders of the future who are not UK citizens and have no emotional commitment to the UK, that leadership, effect, that headquarters effect might kick in in a negative way. So in terms of UK PLC, it's vitally important that we produce the leaders of the future, but it's equally vitally important that graduates today understand they're in a global workforce. Can you tell us a bit more about what employers are looking for then from such candidates, you know, the kind of skills and the competencies? Well, we interviewed, um, I think, about 15 global HR directors for this project. And what emerged was they fundamentally want people who are comfortable in global teams. In other words, that they, they culturally are very quick to assimilate to other people, that they not necessarily are multilingual, oddly. We thought that would be a very important consideration, but it wasn't, is that they were ready and willing and able to understand people on their own terms. It's almost as a, an instinct of anthropological understanding of the, of the situation. That they had taken an interest in the world around them, and not just about gap years and uh, you know, having a nice time on a beach. It you know, really was under, understanding other economies, understanding other societies and how they operate. And crucially, of course, if you're looking inside a global business, it's, it's the willingness to travel very young. 
that begins to mark out these global graduates. They're willing to go and work elsewhere and embrace that as a challenge. So it's a combination of mindset, attitude and willingness is what they were looking for. We'll talk a bit more about how to develop those sort of competencies shortly, but are companies then struggling to find those sort of candidates in the UK? Well, not so much struggling. I mean, we do have some of the best universities in the world in the UK. I think this issue of struggling to identify their future leadership in the UK might be a different set of challenges. I mean, one of the reasons we've got great universities is they they produce talent that comes in from everywhere. So we're brilliant at producing these global leaders. The, The question that we collectively are asking ourselves is, are we brilliant producing them from people who are born in this country or who are UK citizens? What sort of techniques and tools are companies then using to attract and sort of find the people that they want? I think they are looking for people who have a global mindset, who seem to have done some thinking about the world around them and who are thinking about the business challenges of the world around them rather than just a UK perspective or a regional perspective. You know, if, if your perspective is about your local town or your local city, then clearly you're not, you don't have a global mindset. So it's, it's that combination of people who are going to be great team players because that's fundamental to any uh, global environment coupled with this absolute willingness to go and do anything you need to do, to get done for the business. So the testing out these two things, one is the uh, this idea of being great team players, but also this willingness to take risks. So you mentioned that, you know, it needs to go beyond the gap year. So what do you think candidates need to do then if, if they don't feel they have the skills and awareness already? What sort of practical things and steps would you recommend? I, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to school. I mean, I think you can't suddenly invent yourself as a, globally, as a global thinker you know, yeah. at the age of 21. You know, you have to start thinking, and schools have to help with this. They have to start thinking much younger. The Erasmus programme, which I'm sure most students know about, British students tend not to go on it. I mean, relative to the Germans and the Spanish who are sending close to 30,000, we send about 12,000 on the Erasmus programme. It's internationalising yourself and your mindset, both at school and at university, goes a long way towards this. The UK is just a very small island now, and graduates from the UK have to think of, of themselves as being part of this this global marketplace that businesses are in. You actually preempted my question on Erasmus. I was going to ask about the reluctance that seems from UK students. Do you think that, again, stems from secondary? Or is it that we're not making enough of those opportunities? What do you think that's down to? There seems to be a very interesting cultural thing. If you talk to French or German students, the, the, the way that business sees these Erasmus students is they are the future leaders of the business. You know, and they talk about the Erasmus generation. You don't hear, hear many people in the UK talking about the Erasmus generation. It doesn't seem to have caught the cultural imagination. And, of course, we, one of our great strengths in this country is one of our great weaknesses, which is that we speak English. You know, we share our language with the Americans. You know? <laughs> um, and that seems to be another challenge as well. You know, we, we, don't, we don't have this kind of inherent multilingualism that um, the French or the Germans will have. It's what's called a cohort effect. In other words, if everyone of your mates do it, then you'll do it. But if you're the only one doing it, you don't want to do it because by the time you come back to university after you're away, everyone's gone. And that seems to be quite a powerful effect, actually. So I think for that host of reasons, the Erasmus programme hasn't taken off as successfully in the UK as it has in other mainland countries. You know, we should be trying to market this more effectively across the university base. And there's no, it's interesting, there's no real uh, sociological or psychological characteristic to the person who is willing to do this. I mean, I've talked to some major employers and said, well, you know, what are these people like? And they said, well, they're just kind of people. I mean, the thing that marks them out is they want to go and travel. They want to work abroad. So, and I think demonstrating that to, to businesses is crucial. And if you're something, you know, if you're one of these, a big engineering firm, you're constantly sending people 
away, you know, from the, the home base. And in fact, it's part and parcel of your training. In the research that we uh, the report, we, we highlight five or six different graduate training programs from businesses where basically you get in the door and you're sent somewhere else. And that's part and parcel of, of who you're supposed to be for the business. And that's terribly exciting, you know, but it's a bit risky for the business. So they, so they need to know that the person that they're taking on is willing to embrace that level of risk in their lives. Obviously, the actually going overseas is, is crucial, but do you think the building of global networks can be done via social media? Say if you've missed out on your opportunity to take, to go on an Erasmus programme, for example. Yeah, well, I think, you know, start a website that talks to students in Kazakhstan, you know, and demonstrate that you've got other ways of, of reaching out beyond the UK. You know, it's a tough, tough marketplace, as, as every uh, undergraduate knows and every, every graduate trying to get a job knows. Differentiating yourself from everyone else is, is central. And if you want to work for a big business or a global business or a business that's got international reach, demonstrating that you've got those kind of international networks and commitments is, is crucial. Now, that's not just about adding people on Facebook, to be honest. I mean, you know, <laughs> I don't think you can demonstrate your international commitment by having a mate in New York you know, it's, uh, on Facebook. So it's, it's more, it has to go beyond social media. I mean, if I was sitting down trying to go for a job now, I think I probably would have gone to China or I've gone to demonstrated to, to somebody that, yeah, I've, I've done this, I've gone and worked in a business where it's, you know, you're taking on something tough. I wanted to focus a little bit more on the global competencies that the report outlines. And I think for graduates, it'd be really useful to use that as a reference point, sort of as a, a checklist. But could we pick out a couple and could you tell them about how they can be developed and why they're important? I mean, one that I thought was quite interesting was the cultural agility. Mm. I mean, what sort of level of detail do you need there? I think, again, it's have you gone off and done something that demonstrates cultural agility? For example, there's a, there's a fantastic thing called Student for Free Enterprise. Sounds very American, which indeed it is. But the UK version of it is fantastic and what happens is that students gather together they raise their own funds um, through selling things or making things they gather that funding up and then they go and invest it in India or they invest it in Africa and the, the kind of investment they make is in is social investment so it's about helping small communities be entrepreneurial and self-sustaining so I'll give you a great example they went they there's one university went off and, and helped set up in effect many chicken farms Right, self-sustaining. The community themselves uh, bought into it, uh, in, and when the students left, they left behind a, an economy that made sense. Now that demonstrates cultural agility. You know, understanding how the dynamic of a small village operates and leaving behind, without in any way being imperialist about it, leaving behind functioning economic value demonstrates cultural agility. Anybody can join a student for free enterprise organisation in the UK, in, in a UK university. They're all over the place and they are fantastic. Just to finish, can you tell us what the next steps are going to be for the Global Graduate sort of programme of research? What, what are you going to be doing next? Well, we deliberately call this Global Graduates into Global Leaders. And I think we have to understand how that transition is going to work. I mean, it, that's for me where I started with the headquarters effect. You know, how are we going to grow Global Leaders in UK universities. And I want to make clear that it's not just about these big businesses, it's about, you know, it's a startup in Brighton internationalizing itself, you know, as much as, as much as anything. So we're going to start probing that leadership issue next with both businesses and universities and, and really get under the skin of that. So I think a lot of different things will, will emerge from this global graduate project as we start to roll it out. And not least, we have to get the definition much clearer. I mean, it seems to me that there's still a vagueness about what we're talking about here. You know, is, is it simply because you're globally mobile that you become a global graduate? Well, no. You know, just if, just because you go and work in France doesn't make you globally a global graduate. And then there's a kind of an evangelical element to it. I was trying to sell this concept back into schools and, and to universities. 
and saying that, that this is what businesses are increasingly looking for and therefore how do you help develop them? Well, I think it's a fascinating project and, and we're really happy to highlight it and thank you so much for all your advice. Hopefully our listeners will be able to put your global suggestions into action. Thanks, David. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. So we've scoured the Guardian Jobs Board to select the top 10 international roles for your consideration. Eliza and Ali are going to reveal the chart. Kicking us off at 10, the St Helena government is looking for a project manager. At 9, Atwood Tate is looking for junior editors to work in Lebanon. And at 8, it's places on the 2E Travel Specialist and Activity Graduate Development Programme. Handle Recruitment is looking for a digital account manager based in Stockholm at 7. Six is a year four teacher in Sudan from Teach Anywhere. Commerce Bank has places on its graduate programme in London and Frankfurt at five. And at four, FIFA is looking for an English translator to work at its Zurich HQ. The University of Luxembourg is looking for a scientific journalist at three. Pip to the post at two, the British school in the Netherlands wants a physics teacher. And topping the chart this week is English teacher roles for British Council Vietnam. And finally, here's what we've got coming up on careers.guardian.co.uk next week. On Tuesday, 4pm until 6pm is thinking about a career in screenwriting. Wednesday, 1pm till 4pm is should you pursue a career in journalism. And Thursday, 1pm till 4pm also is how to impress in a job interview. If you want to get Q&A links and future podcasts delivered directly to your inbox, you can now sign up to our weekly newsletter. I'll drop a link onto the show notes. That brings us to the end of the pod. Thanks to our guest, David Doherty, and everyone at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office that spoke to us, plus Eliza Anyangwei and Ali White. Careers Talk was produced by Sarah Cudden. I'm Kerry Eustace. Au revoir. <laughs>